calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. I'm your host, Anne Foster, and I want to give a special greeting to there's there's some new listeners out there. So I want to greet you after the uh, weird coincidence of I did the Empress Cece episodes with Lana Wood Johnson, which she and I have been meaning to do for like ever and ever. And it just kind of finally worked out coincidentally. The Empress the German TV show came on Netflix and became really popular. And now there's this new movie about CC called Corsage coming out. So we're in the midst of a bit of a CC sauce, I guess. And that's brought some people to this podcast. So welcome. This is our international season, which has been going on since March 2022. Considerably longer than I had thought it would go, but we've got into these multi-part episodes and I'm having a good time. And here we go. So Although I will say things are starting to wrap up. An end is in sight for this season. I have plans for next season. There's going to be a petite hiatus after we finish International. But I don't want you to worry. Like, we're doing this episode. Part two of this episode is going to be next week. Potentially part three. I don't know how long it's going to be. Then there's going to be two, no, three more people to talk about. Some interviews coming up. Anyway, that's, that's behind the scenes what I'm up to. So... The international season, the whole purpose of it was that the show has got a following in all kinds of countries all over the place. And I really wanted to learn more about the places where listeners are from and share those stories with other listeners and help people who are, are listening from all different countries, you know, to have them get their stories shared. So for that reason, I have been accepting suggestions from people. And I will continue to, I'm not stopping. Like, please send me suggestions of people. I was looking at the, I have this really long um, Google sheet of all the potential people for future episodes and it's lengthy. And because I am a librarian, I have sorted it by continent and country and year. And it's, there's a lot of exciting stuff that I have to investigate during the hiatus. Anyway, please send me ideas for episodes you'd like to hear for sure. And today's episode is 
one that was suggested by a listener. So Andrea, who is in Ecuador, suggested there a, a woman who I think she has described to me, and, and Andrea has been really, really, really helpful contextualizing all this stuff for me because I didn't know anything about the history of Ecuador before I started learning about this, let alone the history of South America, as it turns out. A lot of this has been very humbling for me to learn how much I don't know when I start learning about things. But yeah, so Andrea describes our heroine this week and next, Manuela Sanz, as an icon of the South American Revolution. She says, Manuela is one of the most iconic female characters of our country. She is so fearless, and even though most of the things shown today is her love story, there's so much more in how she helped through the revolution. So, yeah, there is a love story in this, and it's the sort of thing, I've had this, I can't think of an example right now, but other people this season were like, I had never heard of them before. And then when I go to kind of the most recent book about them, it's very, it's almost like defensive. They're like, she's more than just the love story. And I'm like, okay, I didn't know, I didn't know she was the love story. So she's more than just the love story. So we all know that, but kind of the reason why we know about her is because of the love story, because she was the longtime mistress of Simone Bolivar, the liberator of South America. So I'm going to be getting into the history of it. I, I really shouldn't say this off the top of my head, so I won't contextualize that at all because I'll probably get it incorrect. Oh, but I also wanted to mention just while we're here in this little introduction era. So if any of you are listening on Apple Podcasts, I always say at the end, like, you know, please rate and review and whatever, but I have a specific call to action for people who are listening on Apple Podcasts or who have the ability to put reviews on Apple Podcasts, because I recently got a review from someone who said that they think I say the word like too often. So if you're listening and you like this podcast, presumably you think I say the word like an appropriate amount of times. So just to counterbalance that, you know, if that's how you feel, feel free to leave a little review on Apple Podcasts saying that Anne says the word like an appropriate amount of times. And I guess that's another thing for anyone who's just new to this podcast, as I was about to say, who's like new to the podcast. I'm not going to be self-conscious. Fuck that. Whatever. Anyway, the whole point of this podcast is I just talk like I talk in normal life. That's what we're about here. That's why it's a feminist women's history comedy podcast. It's not just like a history podcast where I just like say facts and stuff. My personality is like 50% of this podcast. So if you don't vibe with that, that's fine. But if you do, you should leave a thing on Apple Podcast saying that I say the word like a normal amount of times. So Manuela Sanz is who we're talking about today. The main sources I had for her and I, it's interesting. Okay. So the main source is this book called For Glory and Bolivar, The Remarkable Life of Manuela Sanz by Pamela S. Murray. And Pamela S. Murray, thank God for this book. She went to all kinds of archives. There's lots of letters. Like she really painstakingly went through to figure out like, what are the facts? What do we know Manuela actually did or thought or wrote? There's a lot of legends and rumors about her. So I did also look at Wikipedia. I looked at some other websites, but as I was going through, I looked at the websites first to like orient myself. But ultimately a lot of what I read there, like Pamela S. Murray found was like probably not true and like maybe a legend. So I'm going to just shout out those as the main sources, as well as the Oxford Encyclopedia of Women's History, which also, anyway, Pamela S. Murray, thank God for this book. 
So again, it's a funny thing of like, I'm going to have to like tell you like people say this, but actually it was this. And many of you might be like, I didn't know people said that. So we're looking at South America. Um, the last time that this podcast visited South America was when I believe Catalina de Arauso was stabbing her way around there and a fairly chaotic way llamas were involved. We are going to intersect some of the cities I mentioned here. I was like, I know that city name. And it's because it was a place that Catalina de Arauso went back in the day. So um, yeah, it's been a minute since I compared years of like, when does a story take place? When does other stories take place? In general, this podcast, I go in chronological order because that is just what I decided to do. These last several episodes, we're just kind of bouncing around the 19th century back and forth based on when I have time to research who. So let's just like ground this in where and when we are because the time period, I guess the time period is important to anyone's life, but this is like a really chaotic moment that this story kicks off with. So. Manuela Sanz was born in 1797. That is the same year Mary Shelley was born, um, 30 years after Carolina of Brunswick was born, 20 years before Lola Montez. And so it's kind of like, so about 200 years after Catalina de Arauso was stabbing her way around some of these cities. Why do I keep bringing up Catalina de Arauso? Because she was in South America during the time that Spain was conquesting that entire continent, Portugal was also. So 200 years. So Spain has been in South America for about 200 years by the time Manuela Sanz is around. So it's an equivalent-ish period of time to like Britain was in the United States for whatever amount of time before like the American Revolution happened. So it's like, it's been long enough that the, the colonies of Spain have been kind of like, you know, there's been a couple generations of people have been born there. Like people have been born in South America to Spanish parents. Like, so they're just that kind of separate from Spain itself in the same way that the United States was separate from Britain or England itself when they did the American Revolution. Yeah. So I just also think it's interesting. Like she was born in 1797. So this all happens. This story is like the this episode, which is the first part of her story. Um, it's like the 1820s, which is what I often think of as like the Regency era, you know, so like Mary Shelley, Jane Austen, Bridgerton, Empire Waste Gowns, like that's what's happening in England. And but this is what was happening in South America. So Manuela was born in, as I said, 1797. So she was born in Quito which is, hang on. So there is a whole lot of information I'm not going to get into because I do not fully, I have not, I've done the deep dive on Manuela herself, not about like the political situation. I just tried to learn about as much as I needed to, to understand what she was up to. But effectively, so we're looking at kind of the top West part of South America which when she was born was mainly known as the Vice Royalty of New Granada. So also called the Vice Royalty of the New Kingdom of Granada or the Vice Royalty of Santa Fe. This was, this is an area that corresponds to modern Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, and Venezuela. And it was under the jurisdiction of the Spanish Empire. And by the time Manuela was born, there's already been some movements from both where she is from, so Quito, itself, which is now 
the capital and most populous city of Ecuador at that time. It was part of, ooh, what was it called? It's like the Audencia of Quito. So it was like part of the voice royalty, but not really. And this is where I'm just like, it's like the amount of change that is happening and gonna happen in a story. I was trying to think like what I could compare it to just so you could understand the like slippery nature of like land borders and like what are the countries called and are they countries or are they voice royalties? It's kind of, honestly, I don't know. I'm going to say just in terms of like level of chaos and uncertainty, it's like if I was telling a story where somebody was born right in the middle of like England's War of the Roses, where it's like Plantagenets and Yorks and like Tudors and just like, you know, it's going to settle down eventually, like just settle, but it's just chaos at the moment. So there's like a whole bunch of places in this part of South America, all under the jurisdiction of the Spanish Empire, but basically all of which have some, um, have been working towards sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully, like getting independence from Spain and being their own thing. So her full name, and she gets the title Doña because her father is noble. So Doña Manuela Sanz de Vergara y Aispuru was the illegitimate child of Simon Sanz de Vergara, who was a well-born Spanish adventurer, so from Spain. He was a married man with four children, his wife was not her mother. Her mother was a 30-year-old or in her 30s-year-old neighbor, unmarried woman, family friend named Maria Joaquina Aispuru. So Maria Joaquina was from a wealthy and aristocratic family as well, but it's a whole situation of like, well, he's married. So like these two, you know, it's a, they could never get married. So she was illegitimate. And so when Manuela was born, I think it was this sort of thing where like Maria Joaquina was sort of like hidden away. The baby was born, but just kind of no one really admitted like that she was the mother of the baby. Which becomes important to Manuela later for like inheritance reasons. Uh, Maria Joaquina died shortly after she was born, seemingly. So potentially complications of childbirth. I'm going to propose that whole thing that we've talked about before in this podcast where doctors didn't know about washing their hands when they delivered babies. They would like touch, you know, a dead body or a sick person. And then they would like go directly into like pull a baby out of a woman's vagina. And then that woman would get some sort of blood infection and then die. Like happened to Henry VIII's wife, Jane Seymour. Anyway, so Maria Joaquina died shortly after Manuela was born. Her father admitted that he was the father right away. He never pretended like, ooh, whose baby is that? And so in fact, he paid the 1,000 peso dowry required to get her accepted into La Concepcion Convent, which I did not know that you had to pay a dowry. Like usually I've only heard about dowries in terms of getting people to marry daughters. Anyway, so he paid the dowry so that she could go to this convent and where she was raised by nuns. So this particular convent, La Concepcion, was the oldest, largest, and richest of six female monasteries in Quito. This convent only admitted the daughters of the most noble families, and so the facility was very affluent. You know, like, I presume that means, like, good meals, nice beds, like, everything was nice. And they were not a super strict convent in, like, a scale of, like, really strict convent to, like, party convent. One thing I read described it as a party convent, but I think it's more just like their thing was not 
like this particular order of nuns. Their thing was not like being strict and mean all the time. It was kind of like good works and stuff like that. So like it was in terms of convents, like seemingly the best one for her to grow up in. So she grew up here. Um, she learned, she's very well educated. So she learned literacy as well as domestic arts, which included, interestingly, candy making. As an adult, she kept in touch with these nuns and went to them for advice. So clearly she had a strong connection to them, but which makes sense because like they raised her from infancy. Although she did also, like she knew who her father was and he sort of integrated her into his household a bit. Like he knew her half siblings. And so what was it like growing up in colonial frontier South America in the early 1800s? So uh, women were actually allowed considerable freedom relative to the times and I guess to what freedom women would be allowed in like Spain, for instance. Uh, So Manuela grew up knowing how to smoke, drink, and swear. There is a rumor slash legend that when she was around 17, she may have run away or tried to run away with a military guy who was her lover. We don't know if she actually did that, but the rumored lover is um, Fausto, Fausto de Elhuyar, the son of Fausto Elhuyar and the nephew of Juan Jose Elhuyar, who were, fun fact, the co-discoverers of tungsten. Anyway, so we don't know if she tried to run away. Although, like, can I just say... Like, I forget when I have the part in my notes about, like, what was her personality like? But she was, like, she had some real chaotic energy, which she found ways to funnel in helpful directions. But she was a prankster. She loved nothing more than a good joke. She loved scandalizing people. So, like, growing up in, like, a borderline party convent, like, maybe she did try to run away. But we do know that at around the same time, her father decided to marry her off. So that could have been a way to be like, she's a little out of control. Let's try to like make her a wife and that'll make her be more quiet. And so he chose as her husband, a man who, so his dad was this like businessman, this like very rich businessman. Oh, I want to say also, so the culture of like New Granada was Again, I'm going to compare it to like the United States. So it's like people, like the colonists came over from Spain. These were like white people, like in the sense of like skin color was very important. So they were like pale skinned white people came over from Spain. And that became like the aristocracy of Quito and of New Granada. And um, there was also like, there's obviously the indigenous people there. I believe it was the Incas were in this region. And then also uh, the Spanish came over, they brought um, enslaved black people with them. So there's like people here of various complexions, but um, the, the most important people had pale skin and prided themselves on their pale skin. And so, yeah, so it's very much just like you wanted to be kind of as white as possible as so even though. I don't know, I guess it's complicated because the whole like wanting to separate from Spain of it all, but like you wanted to be like as most like your lineage was European. The way the people in the US would be like, oh, my ancestors can date all the way back to the Mayflower. Like that's how white I am. So um, Manuela was light skinned um, with dark hair. I guess she was described as having a roses and cream complexion. She was very beautiful, pale skin, dark hair, kind of a Lola Montez-esque um, appearance. But in her case, it's because she's actually of Spanish descent. I picture her kind of like an Ana de Armas, 
looking person. But yeah, so she was beautiful, which is important because it affected how people reacted to her and also what she was able to get away with because also she was very wealthy and she had the privilege of being, having this roses and cream, light skin complexion. And the fiance that her father chose for her was English, like from England, which was seen as a prestigious match because he was a white person. His name was James Thorne. And there were like some wealthy English people were there like running plantations, like sugar plantations, I think is what he was doing. James Thorne was about twice her age. Like she's about 20 and he's about 40. But also because he was from England, I think it was probably a good match for her because maybe he wouldn't like some of the wealthy white Spanish people or like people of Spanish descent who were there. Confusingly to me, the word that's used for the like really aristocratic white people whose ancestors came over from Spain, but who themselves were born in South America is Creole, which is a word that until now I have thought only meant like mixed race, like black people from like Louisiana. But the Creoles in this context were like people whose ancestors had come over from Spain and then they only ever had children with people who are also descended from Spain. Anyway, so the Creole culture, maybe it would have been harder to find like a good husband for Manuela because she was illegitimate. But James Thorne, who is from England, was rich and maybe didn't have some of the same hangups. And so he married her. And so she left Quito to go to Lima to marry him. And so Peru, um, it's a brigade. Peru can let me know because this uh, Peru was at times in this story, an independent, I think, republic, but then at times is part of New Granada. So I'm not sure. But anyway, Lima, Peru a place where perhaps the ghost of Catalina de Arauso and her 500 llamas were still there in some way. That is where Manuela went to marry James Thorne. Um, They had a lavish wedding celebration that lasted for three days. And here's the thing. So yes, like she's 20. She just married a 40-year-old man. She is like, we're going to get into it, but just like a prankster, a goofball, real weirdo. So her options for what she's going to do was either like she'd be married off or she would become a nun. And I think of the two options, this suits her personality better because being married opened up her world in the sense of she now had more independence as a married woman. So not unlike what we talked about a few weeks ago with the Chosan kingdom of like oldie times, Korea, um, Spanish society and the society of this new Granada was very much modeled after Spain, um, society in Spain. So it didn't, there wasn't many rights for women. For instance, women were treated as legally minors and thus like children ineligible for full participation in civil society or for inclusion in civic or public life. Uh, women were barred from all positions of leadership and governance, including with the exception of widows from being head of households. Marriage placed wives under their husband's authority and required them to seek consent before doing a lot of stuff. But unlike women in this exact era in France, Britain, or the US, uh, women in South America, and I guess in Spain, maintained their own judicial identity. So as soon as she was married, um, she was recognized under the law as a separate and distinct person rather than just as someone subsumed into the being of her husband. Um, she also would retain a certain independence and freedom of action. 
Um, she could draft her own will, testify in court, and accept inheritance without her husband's consent, which becomes important later. There's like a whole inheritance saga. So basically, to an upper-class woman like Manuela, this was like a relatively decent bargain. Like marry some boring guy and you get kind of more independence and more rights. She also became the mistress of a wealthy household. And then she also, like, he trusted her. Like, he was not... James Thorne is not going to win the, like, award for being an okay husband, but he he could have been much worse. You know what? He could have been so much worse. I'm going to say he's not going to win the, like, supporting award because he did not support a lot of what she did, but he was not awful. He was He was an okay husband, and he saw that she was smart and capable, and so she became his confidant and business collaborator. And like when he went out of town, she would like run the business or like run the household. Like she, she knew as what well. she like could do stuff. But she knew that like financially she was entirely dependent on him and she saw another option. So she sought to claim inheritance from her mother's family. So like everyone always knew who her father was. Like she had his last name. Like she visited his house. Like he arranged her marriage. But the identity of her mother had been kept secret for, I guess, scandal reasons. But it's like, how secret was it? Like maybe an open secret? So she hired a lawyer to officially petition for her to get some inheritance from the Aizpuru family. And so because of the way that laws work, if she got this inheritance, um, this would be her money and James Thorne couldn't control it. So it'd bring her a measure of independence. So even though she hasn't like found her calling in life, like she's trying to find ways to like have a bit more um, independence for herself. But meanwhile, Manuela was in Lima, which was a much bigger city than uh, Quito. So at this time, there's something like 65,000 people living there, which was more than three times the number in Quito where she was from. So it's just like, you know, moving from the small town to the big city. Plus in Lima, women had like, on top of what I just talked about being like, here's how Spanish law worked. Um, women in Lima were known for having an unusual degree of freedom and mobility, like specifically women in Lima. Uh, so unlike uh, women in Spain and even elsewhere in, in Spanish America, women in Lima were allowed to walk around unchaperoned, which led to um, uh, the women mingling with people of all classes. So like upper class, lower class, people of all different skin complexions. And this was like, just not what was done. I feel like this was not done in what my notes here just say, like, not like Spain, not like Spanish America. I feel like not like England, not like France, not Italy, like not Sweden. So when European men came to Lima to visit, they were shocked. I, I just need to give a shout out to one of my favorite podcasts, which is the SVH podcast, the Sweet Valley High podcast. It's hosted by two hilarious women from Ireland. And it's truly the way that I think vulgar history may have been for some of you, like it's a show that I just like binge the entire back, back catalog during uh, quarantine and they're fabulous. And so there's uh, basically their podcast is they just go, every episode of their podcast is a different book in the Sweet Valley High book series. They're up to book like 95 or something. By now they have a massive back catalog. Anyway, there's one episode, it's a super special, where the Sweet Valley High twins, um, Elizabeth and Jessica Wakefield, go to this small town, I forget, in like Iowa to visit their elderly aunt and uncle. And when one of them, probably Jessica, does something that the the aunt finds shocking, the aunt is like, Herman, my pills! 
And then it's become sort of a long-standing joke on this podcast that whenever something happens, it's just like, Herman, my pills, just sort of this pearl clutching feeling. So I feel like these European men went to Lima, saw women like Manuel just like chilling out, talking, probably smoking with people of different classes and different races. And the European men are just like, Herman, my pills. Just so you know, <laughs> that's how they were. Anyway, so why were things different there? And I'm not sure why things are different there, but part of what helped things be different, why women were able to do this is because of the city's traditional female costume, the Saya e Manto. And I'm going to put pictures of this on the Instagram page just so you can see what it looks like. It's quite a look. So this ensemble was a long pleated skirt with decorative fringe and a manto. I guess that's the saya. The manto is a black shawl that's sort of wrapped around your shoulders and then wrapped around your head and then kind of half wrapped across your face. So it's very um, oldie time lady superhero mixed with like a hijab sort of vibes where like all that you see is just like a woman dressed in this outfit and all you see is the eyes. So you're sort of disguised. So like no one knew who is who because all the women were all dressed like this, I guess. And that allowed them more freedom, I guess. Where did this outfit come from? You tell me. I don't know. But I think it's fabulous. So yeah, so Manuela went from like, it's such a, if you picture her being like whatever she is, like 19, 20 years old, and she goes from the small town, like being in this like nunnery, but also being sort of literally like protected to being suddenly having independence available to her and then being in the big city. And so it's just like, you know, someone goes to university or someone like moves to New York City or something. And she had like so many young people this age, a political awakening. And so again, like this is not the podcast to like learn the specifics of the political situation of 1820s South America. But just please know there was chaos happening all over the place. Part of the reason why was um, there had been the American Revolution recently-ish, the French Revolution, like, rev like people were just kind of like, wait, revolutions can work? That's great. Also recently-ish, Napoleon had invaded Spain and booted out the monarchy, which kind of like put the Spanish colonies into like, wait, who's in charge of us? Even though the king came back later. Just war battles all over the place. And women in Lima and throughout South America were participating in this political conflict. So in Lima specifically, the political conflict was centered on, well, was, I guess if we break down to its like most basic level, there's like people who are still loyal to Spain versus people who wanted autonomy from Spain. So it's the loyalists versus the patriots. Manuela was on the side of the patriots. So upper-class women like Manuela, um, and literally like, literally like her, like she is one of the people who did this, um, used her big house to host, um, gatherings that served as forums for anti-Spanish criticism. Women like Manuela, uh, served as spies and couriers, as well as nurses, armed smugglers, and provisioners of food and clothing. I wonder if they could smuggle like the weapons in their like outfit, their like big skirt and the veil thing. I don't know. Sometimes in disguise, women would join in the battles dressed as men. Um, they also were, quote, recruiters to the cause. Um, like they convinced people to join the patriot cause who maybe were loyalists before by using 
seduction. And then kind of like when, you know, how in, I guess it was World War II, like the men went off to war and then the women stayed at home, but it's like, who's going to like run the car factories or whatever. And so women like did all these jobs and then the men came back and the women were like, actually, we like doing work and having jobs. So because women were needed and were welcomed into this patriot revolution, um, this made the women be like, wait a minute, I like independence. I like being able to do stuff. Like what if there is a role beyond wife, mother, and or daughter? During this era, uh, one of Manuela's friends who she made was the similarly intelligent, attractive, and flirtatious Rosita Campuzano, who is also passionate about La Revolution. I don't know a lot about Rosita, but basically they're both co-hosting salons in support of revolutionary action, organizing women into groups to raise money for shipbuilding and uniforms. Uh, Rosita became the lover of General José de San Martín, the military figure known as the protector of Peru. So, yeah, some of the like specific things Manuela did. So she uh, participated in clothing drives to amass fabric and clothing to resupply the Patriot Army. And in fact, she was so involved, not just in like running a clothing drive or like having bake sales, but all the other stuff I said, you know, arms smuggling and like being a spy and things. So her devotion to the cause was noticed and appreciated. So she got public honor and recognition, including an official award, um, the Order of the Sun. So this entitled her to wear a white and red silk sash with a gold medal bearing the government's coat of arms and the phrase to the patriotism of the most delicate. So there's like the order of the sun brackets male, which men like who are really, I don't know, notable patriots would get. And that came along with like jobs and pensions. Women got like a sash, but it was still very prestigious. So how did her husband, James Thorne, um, and her family from Spain feel about this. So uh, all we know is that her father's, her father and most of his family eventually returned to Spain. So they were not fans of La Revolución. Uh, James Thorne, I do not believe, was all about this patriotic life, but he like really liked his young wife um, and frankly, couldn't stop her. So I don't know if he tried to stop her at this point. So this is kind of what she's doing. She's like a young woman who's like, and I know there's like some young people listening to this podcast. So I know this because sometimes you tag me on TikTok. <laughs> um, you know, there's like some teens, there's some youth who are like in the Tito Brigade brackets, junior varsity level. And I love this sort of, um, arc for her. I think it may be similar to what maybe some of you are like in the midst of where you go from being kind of like a young person who is just kind of like learning about the world. And then you kind of learn about politics and activism. And then like, you see this so much with like Gen Z these days, like, so her eyes were opened about these struggles that were happening. She saw, you know, the struggle between like the Patriots and the loyalists. And she's just like, I'm on team patriots hardcore like let's get this done she's like there's these opportunities for women to do stuff and she's just like hell yeah let's do it so she's like getting her groove like she's just figuring out that she wants to be this kind of like 
revolutionary, like activist person pursuing her dreams. She's also a real weirdo, which like she loves pranks. She loves jokes. She like, like a quote I read just recently, you know, obviously the passing of Angela Lansbury was a cultural reset for many people. If there was a queue in London, like I would stand in line for 72 hours to pay respects to Angela Lansbury, my ultimate life role model. But I read a thing about her where somebody said what one of the many things that's great about Angela Lansbury was that she took her work seriously, but she didn't take herself seriously. And that's what I feel about Manuela because she's got, and I don't know, like we're going to talk about her sort of like legacy and stuff in part two next week. But some people just focus on she was like this heroine of the revolution which she was or some people focus on like she was the mistress of simone bolivar which like we're about to get to that but she was also just like a real goofball like she had a fake mustache that she would wear to parties and just she sometimes like dress up like a man in pants to be like haha i'm a man and everyone's like you're hilarious like she just sounds like a real laugh and you can be all these things you can be like a chaotic prankster and like a really committed revolutionary and like a super sexy woman, like you don't have to choose. That's, that's my message to the youth. And now we're just gonna take a break for a word from our sponsors. Did you know that President John Quincy Adams had a pet alligator that he kept in the East Room of the White House? Well, he didn't, that's a myth. What's not a myth is the story of Thomas Jefferson's four-horned ram that terrorized the White House lawn. An animal he knew was dangerous, but did nothing to stop until it was too late and someone was dead. These are the kinds of stories that Howard Dory and Jessica Dory explore on the award-nominated podcast Plotting Through the Presidents. They combine compelling narrative dives with irreverent humor and marital banter, creating a show that listeners say is well-researched, insightful, delightful, and hilarious. They cover the myths, scandals, and rivalries that bring to life the personalities of the early United States. And they go beyond just the presidents, digging into folks like Benjamin Rush and Governor Morris, two fascinating founders, neither of whom should be trusted with sharp objects. Catch up on their first three bingeable seasons now and plot along with Howard and Jess for the fourth season of Plotting Through the Presidents. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you wouldn't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now. But also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. 
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Anyway, so she's just like all in the revolution. And then she and her husband, so 1822, they went for a trip back to Quito which was partially because her husband had business dealings to do there. Potentially, he was like, what if we just like remove you from this like revolution business? But also she personally had this ongoing quest to try to get inheritance from her mother's family who were back in Quito. So I think for her, that was a lot of what she planned to do there. So the thing with the inheritance is that her mother's family had like all died. There's only one person left, which was her aunt Ignacia, who was the sole executor of the Aispuru estate. And Manuela was like, can I get some inheritance? Like, I am the daughter of your sister, Maria Joaquina. But Ignacia refused to accept the claim, potentially to cover up, like, like no, my sister didn't have a child out of wedlock, so I don't know if it was, like, that reason. So anyway, she was in town to, like, talk to Ignacia about this stuff. But guess who else was in Quito at this same time? Just a guy named Simon Bolivar. Now, this is a name I had heard before. Could not have told you who he was or what era he lived in, but now I know an awful lot about him, and you're about to learn too. So, Simon Bolivar was born in Caracas, which is in modern day Venezuela, and I think oldie times Venezuela as well, or maybe it's part of the New Granada. Anyway, that's where he was born. 1783. So, he's like 15 years older. In Manuela. So he was the son of a noble Spanish Creole family. So yeah, so he's 39 years old when he rolled into Quito at the same time Manuela was there. So Simon was orphaned very young, but he was very rich um, and also light complexioned. So he did just fine. Um, he was raised by his wealthy family and part of, he was educated incredibly well, um, which included being sent to Europe. So he was sophisticated and cosmopolitan, perhaps more so than a lot of other people in this area who maybe hadn't been to Europe or hadn't had the opportunity to read as much like philosophy or whatever. And so by the time he got to Quito, like again, for this like monumental meeting of him and Manuela, so he was known as the Liberator, a title he earned about a decade prior for his prominent role in Venezuela's anti-Spanish insurgency and for his leadership of Spanish America's largest, most dynamic patriot movement. So he's like uh, George Washington, if that's who led the American Revolution, comma, I don't actually know, slash Napoleon kind of figure. He's just like the guy who like led this kind of like 
let's do our own thing army. So this army under his leadership allowed him to begin realizing his political vision and to create a Colombian Republic. So this Republic is like, then it was called the Republic of Colombia, but like today the country of Colombia is the Republic of Colombia. So to not confuse things when we're talking about the oldie time one, we call it Gran Colombia. And so his goal was for Gran Colombia to kind of replace the vice royalty of New Granada, which was like a Spain thing. And to make this be like its own independent thing. He dreamed of Spanish American unity. So the capital of Gran Colombia was Bogota. And it was basically the same place that was the vice royalty of New Granada. Um, modern day Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, and Panama were kind of what Gran Colombia comprised. So Bolivar was elected the first president of Gran Colombia, and he was on his way to becoming the most powerful and prestigious man in Spanish America. He also had tuberculosis. So he would, we'll talk about that later, but so he's doing all this stuff, but he would also just every now and then, I assume, I imagine, delicately cough into a handkerchief. It's like, oh no, there's blood, like Satine in Moulin Rouge. So yeah, kind of like Napoleon had been recently to them. And that was his hero, I think. Believer was a military hero and a revolutionary champion, destroyer of an old caste system and builder of new independent republics. Um, he was also a conqueror. Like he was not in Quito for fun, but he was there because he had just conquered it to make it part of Gran Colombia. So this was like a huge affair. So Believer was paraded into town. The residents of Quito were like, <laughs> we're going to celebrate this because we don't want to get in trouble, but also maybe they're happy about it. I don't know. So the residents of Quito decorated their homes with flowers and red, blue, and gold flags, advertising their new identity as Colombian citizens. They cheered and watched him arrive in like this grand military parade. So there's 300 military officers came to the town square and then another 700 horsemen joined the festivities. He was given like a garland crown. Uh, there was a special Thanksgiving mass, like, thank you for like making us be not part of Spain anymore. And then that night, there was a private ball at the home of a prominent family. And allegedly, this is where Bolivar met Manuela. So she, we don't know that for sure, because if we're just going by only things that are in letters, no one wrote a letter like, oh my God, when we met at that party that night. But like, probably that's, Manuela would have been there. So one of her brothers, like her half-brother, was on the Patriot side and he was unmarried. So he would have had a plus one for this ball. So potentially he brought her as his date. Anyway, so the two of them met and they hit it off right away because she was lively and energetic and weird and beautiful. And he like liked beautiful women who were smart. So they both, but like intellectually, like she had been given a good education at that convent, the party convent. He had been like, obviously educated super well as well. So they're all like, oh my God, you like Voltaire's philosophy? Me too. So they both, yeah, they both admire the same heroes, thinkers and writers. Both were veterans in the fight against Spain. Both also had reputations as very sexy people as well as revolutionaries. Like Simone was like, he had a wife and the wife died. And then he just kind of was like, love him and leave him. Like he would just like take lovers wherever he went. So he's like kind of a ladies man. But then also her like sexy, weird energy brought him new energy because he had like long tuberculosis or whatever you call it. Whenever you have tuberculosis for a long time. 
Yeah, so she was hilarious and weird, and he vibed with her chaotic energy. He found her like, you are not like anyone I've ever met. And she's like, hell yeah, I'm not. So, yeah, so like lots of people had affairs, especially in the like Criollo, um, like rich white people class. Just like everyone had affairs everywhere in the rich everything people class in like every country forever and still do. But the thing is, you like don't talk about it. You just like... You have affairs and it's like an open secret, like how the identity of her mother was an open secret, but you just like, don't let anyone know about it. So like she was, of course, married, which was like, you know, scandalous in another way, I guess. So they like became lovers, but it wasn't like, he wasn't open about it. She wasn't like, Hey, this is, I'm Bolivar and this is my lover, Manuela. Like they had to kind of keep it under wraps because she was like, married and i don't know i don't know it's just that whole stupid thing where it's like people are having affairs we have to pretend like you're not whatever anyway here's some examples of manuela being hilarious so in one of her letters she said herself like she loves nothing better than a good joke she never took herself too seriously and she loved pranks she loved pulling pranks here's one of her hilarious pranks so she had a a friend or like a group of friends, like lady friends who she would meet to go horseback riding. And one morning, like when they had arranged to meet to go horseback riding, she arrived disguised as a man wearing her fake mustache and an officer's uniform. Before anyone could recognize who it was, she was like, ha ha ha. And then like ran off on her horse. So just like random, silly good times, hand swearing, disguised mustache. This is what's going on. Would it surprise you to know that some historians of the 20th century were like, hmm, hand swearing, fake mustache. She must have been some sort of like intersex person or like some sort of insane lesbian where it's like, or she was just like a hilarious person who wore pants sometimes. Anyway, Bolivar wrote like, obviously she was beautiful, but he said he loved her for her delightful temperament and her enchanting spirit, even more than her like hotness. He referred to her as his dear madwoman, like, because she was just like, she had a personality and she's going to let it shine. And as soon as she met Believer, she's just like, this is it. Like, I'm your lover. Like, so long, James Thorne. This is the end. James Thorne was like, but what about not leaving me? And she was like, mm, no. In one letter, because um, a lot of what we know about her is like from her letters. So I'm going to read you. Like he wrote her a letter being like, please come be my wife again. I'm really boring. And she wrote, quote, no, 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 no. For God's sake, man, 1,000 times, no, I will not go back to you. So yeah, that's what she thinks. However, as much as she was devoted to Believer, he was like busy traveling around, conquering, being the president of Gran Colombia. And so she's just like, Ugh, I don't love this, like being stuck in Quito. I think that's where she was staying, I think, um, for business reasons, for her husband's business. So she's just like, I don't love being here for like six months, nine months and like not seeing my lover. So she figured out a way that she could travel with him, which was that she joined his entourage by getting herself a job as his personal archivist. So there's, you know, an archivist is not the same thing as a librarian, but as I am personally a librarian, I respect that she took this career path. So this was obviously, but I'll just point out a very unusual thing um, for a woman to do as few women at the time occupied positions on the staff of armies. But crucially, 
her job meant that she got a paycheck and her own independent income. So she was more free to like leave James Thorne, but also be with her lover all the time. Side note, she's also an excellent equestrian and we've had several of those lately. Um, Cece also being an excellent equestrian who we looked at. And her outfit that she liked to wear was red pants and a black velvet poncho. Her loose curly hair falling out from under a plumed hat. She also, I think during her time with the army, she learned to become skilled with a sword and pistol. But remember, she already knew how to drink, swear, and smoke. She was often described as eccentric. People were like, is she a lesbian because she wears pants? Even though she was also like the lover of a man. Anyway, here's a quote. She would dress up during the day as an official, and during the night she went through a metamorphosis with the help of some wine. So, Manuela was following him, but always at a distance, because, like, people, you know, you didn't want to spread where he was going, because Bolivar had lots of enemies. So, because, although they had, like, independence from Spain now, there's a lot of, like, civil infighting. Because he was like, I'm the president now of all these places that used to be their own thing. And all those places were like, what if you're not our president and we are our own thing again? So everyone didn't love what Bolivar was doing. It's kind of like they had all united against Spain. But once there wasn't a common enemy, they were like, no, we'll fight each other, I guess. So anyway, yeah, so she moved at a distance so that she wasn't with him. Partially because she had to protect the precious archive. So she was just like a bookmobile person, just like traveling around with all these letters. She was his chief confidant, secretary, and advisor. Um, remember, he has tuberculosis. So she would read to him when he was tired and cared for him when he was sick. Simone's aide de camp, Daniel Florencio O'Leary, Irish name, she suggested that she be made a colonel. Um, and people began to refer to her as Bolivar's woman. There was a big, momentous battle, December 9th, 1824, the Battle of Ayacucho, Peru, in which Bolivar's army won, and Spain lost, the, there was the last stand for Spain to try to be in charge of anything in South America. So there is a strong legend that Manuela was at this battle, and that to prove that she'd been at the battle, she um, like cut off the mustache of a man who had died and then wore that mustache around as a joke. This has not been proven, but what a story. And also hilarious. We know she had a fake mustache. Maybe she like one time made a joke like, oh yeah, I got this mustache off a man I killed in battle. And someone was like, she killed a man in battle and scalped his mustache. Like, anyway. From what Pamela Murray found in her book, where she was like looking at actual records, not just like legends and whatever, rumors, we don't know that Manuela or Simone were at this actual battle, but I'm sure they were happy that it went that way. So April, so that was December 1824, April 1825, Bolivar began a long sort of like, I'm the president now, sort of like glory tour of Southern Peru, Peru and Bolivia territory just freed from the Spanish, leaving Manuela behind in Lima or kind of like the suburbs of Lima. He didn't see her for nine months. So again, this is like, we know a lot of their relationship from letters because they were just apart a lot. Like he, and they wrote about how much they loved each other and stuff, kind of like Harem Sultan Suleiman vibes a bit, but eventually he was kind of like, eh, maybe we should like break up. But the wording of it suggests maybe this is because her goddamn husband, James Thorne, 
Like, how many no's does he need in one letter? Clearly more than 12. Uh, I guess might have gone to Bolivar to be like, please break up with her. So my like wife will come back to this boring life with me, even though she's clearly really well suited to being on the revolution. Anyway, so Bolivar might have been like, mm, okay. Anyway, but you know, he couldn't quit her and she couldn't quit him. And so he returned to Lima and they like, rather than break up, they kind of made it official. Like he started paying for her to have her own house. Like, it was very much like with um, Charles II or Louis XIV with the like official matri- mistress role. Like she like had her own home, which like side note, I very much respect relationships in which people live separately. I think that's healthy and more people should do it. Anyway, so she lived in her own house and just everyone, it was no longer a secret. She was his mistress out of the shadows. So now that she was like official mistress and like not on the move all the time. So she took on the role similar to the mistresses for like Charles II and stuff. She would sort of people come to her with like requests and she could like intercede on behalf of like refugees or other distressed individuals like Harem Sultan. She really had a soft spot for people who were in trouble or like financially, especially. She began looking after the needs of believers, men, especially soldiers or junior officers who were ill. She interceded with Believer on behalf of individuals seeking pardon or clemency. And I imagine this is part of why she is seen as this heroic figure to Ecuador as well. Like she wasn't just like, she was a cool lady wearing pants on a horse in a revolution, being hilarious with a mustache, but she was also like doing all this philanthropic stuff. Like she was being like kind and good and it's kind of like Princess Diana-esque way, but also weird and also sexy. And this is why I want to tell the youth, you don't have to choose. You can be all of those things. But as this was happening and she was thriving, Bolivar not doing so great, like vis-a-vis tuberculosis and also vis-a-vis he was like voted in to be the dictator. Like it sounds like parliament like literally said like, please be a dictator. And he's like, yeah. His enemies did not like that he was now the dictator. His enemies being largely the people of Peru. Um, They're in Lima. So like kind of surrounded by enemies. So there was lots of plots and conspiracies cooking up all over the place. Um, One of these was some Peruvian anti-believer types noticed that there was this one division of the army who was like maybe discontent and the anti-believer People were like, mm, we can like, let's just make them be like even more mad. And then maybe they'll like mutiny. So this was the third division of the Colombian army who had been left behind, I guess, in Lima. They were mad about various stuff, like not being paid. Understandable. So these guys, like they did mutiny. They rose against their senior commanding officers, seized control of a palace in Lima. And then some more Peruvian like citizen civilians joined this protest. And Manuela, who is there, was like, oh God, no, what's going on? Because Simone was off doing whatever, but she was still there. So she, first of all, she was like, the archives, like her commitment to these letters and this archive is like really commendable. She's just like, the archive must protect it. So she like smuggled out the archives. And then she's also like, I'm going to settle this myself with my awesome mediation skills. So she put on her pants, literally. She put on her colonel style man uniform, maybe her mustache. I like to think so. Um, got her like pistol and her sword. And she went to like personally speak to the members of the battalion to try to convince them to like stop the mutiny. Um, But she knew that like she wasn't going to convince them with just words. So she also like began 
distributing money among the sergeant corporals to try and persuade them slash bribe them to resist this like rebellion against the rebellion. She had some success with this, but um, her actions bothered the authorities of Peru because they hated Bolivar and she was like helping Bolivar. So they burst into her home to arrest her. She was like, oh, can you do it in the morning? It's like late and I'm sleepy. And they're like, okay. And then wildly, they just like waited while she slept through the night. And then in the morning, they took her to a women's prison, which I think was just like a part of a convent nunnery type situation. And she was kept there for several months being so annoying. Eventually they released her. She wrote letters of complaint and she had enough friends in high places that eventually she won her release. But they were like, okay, we're going to release you, but you have to leave Peru and you can never come back to Peru. And you have to leave within 24 hours. And so she's like, deal, got it. Farewell, Peru. So she got on a ship to leave. Um, and by this point, just her legend was so strong. She herself was known as the Libertadora. So sort of like Simone was the liberator and she was the Libertadora, the like lady liberator. A public legend to match Bolivar in the minds of some. And that's where we're going to leave it for this week. Next week, we're going to learn more about Manuela. And like now that she and Simone are like in the same city, you know, how does their relationship go? We'll talk about that next time. So, oh, I wanted to mention because in last year, I did some like Halloween super special episodes. And I think this is the episode that's airing closest to Halloween. But also because we're looking at South American stories and because uh, Hispanic slash Latina slash Latinx Heritage Month just ended. I wanted to give some recommendations. So for instance, if you want to listen to some, there's so many um, spooky like ghost monster stories coming out of like South America, Central America, Mexico, that there are like a bunch of podcasts about it. One of which is is Spooky Tales, which is hosted by Christina, who is the editor of this podcast. And so I super recommend you listen to that. It's like Is Spooky Tales, like E-S-P-O-O-K-Y. Tales, I also super recommend. Monstras podcast, which I mentioned before. They did an episode about Malincine slash Malinche and like what kind of like Malinche in myth and legend. Anyway, so it's like Halloween slash Day of the Dead are approaching. If you want to listen to some good ghost stories, those are two excellent podcasts to scratch that itch. And also, yeah, so if you go to vulgarhistory.com, that's one of the places where you can suggest people who you think that I might want to talk about in future episodes. Like, as I've said, like this season is like, we're inching towards ending international but there's going to be more seasons like, and I'm going to always want to share stories from all different countries. So please let me know. Yeah. So vulgarhistory.com is a place where you can send me emails. You can also send me DMs where we are on Instagram at vulgarhistorypod, where I will be putting pictures of Manuela and also of that like outfit with the veil. So you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, you can also follow slash reach out to me on Twitter at vulgarhistory. And if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Writer. That is where so for $1 a month, you get early access to the podcast, which is also ad-free. You usually get it about five days in advance and ad-free. 
And then for, if you pledge $5 a month, then you get access to the bonus episodes that I do. So, so this asshole at this point, I feel like Simone Bolivar is someone I want to learn about for that. Although uh, the people on Patreon have been voting and Genghis Khan, I think might be the next one of those I'm doing. The most recent one of those of So This Asshole I did was Christopher Columbus, who was just like, hui. And then also that's where we do Vulgar Peace Theater, where I'm joined by Lana Wood Johnson, Alison Epstein. We talk about costume dramas. Our most recent one is we talked about Newsies. And then next month, we're going to be talking about Queen Margot, which is finally on streaming. And I recommend everybody watch that movie, even if you're not going to listen to that podcast. You can shop at vulgarhistory.store. Use code TITSOUT for free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. And I hope you have a great week. Keep your mustache and pants on and your tits out. And I'll talk to you all next time. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumaki. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.